We've gone a whole pandemic without <laughs> issues with our, our computer and stuff like that. And today, it's gone amok. But we are here to worship God. And that psalm that we just read puts him in his place. He is the God over all. He reigns over everything. And I just trust that as you've come together with us this morning, that you have that in your heart and mind, that it is God we're lifting up. It's him that we're exalting. So let's begin with a word of prayer, uh, this um, message from his word. Father, we come before you. We're thankful to you. Uh, As has been said, we just celebrated your resurrection. And we know that through Jesus Christ, we have this connection with you. In Christ, uh, we are adopted children, and we're thankful for that. We come together, we worship you, we, we rejoice in what we have in Christ, and Lord, we ask that you would only help us to love you more, to serve you better through our lives. So as we look into your word this morning, we just trust that you will um, tune our higher hearts and our minds that we would be able to hear from you. Uh, We want your spirit to speak to each one of us individually. We want to know what it is you would have us do with the truth that we're going to look at this morning. We know that it can change us. We have had you change our lives before, and we pray that you would continue to do just that as as we look into your word this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after that brief step away from Genesis, as we uh, focused on Christ, the cross, the resurrection, we're going back to Genesis chapter 21. The previous chapter, just to give you the little recap, we learned that when we understand who's in charge, everything else makes sense. It's not that everything is easy, but everything is simple. Life makes more sense when we realize who our authority is that it is God, and our ethic becomes very clear how we should proceed or how we should approach life. And we ask those three questions. Who do you fear? What is right? And how should we live? And we saw this truth displayed in that role reversal between Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham, God's chosen man, he starts to fear man rather than God. And then he starts telling half-truths, and he just tries to scheme his way through life. And then there's this guy, Abimelech, who's a, a pagan king, and in a dream, God comes to him, and after being impressed with God and understanding his authority, he's the one who gives Abraham the lesson in morality. He's the one who submits to God. And so, authority of God, moral absolutes, and an attitude of submission. Life is simple. And that is the way we need to live life. We need to live life below God's authority, understanding who he is. And I mean, we would all say, I think everybody here this morning would say, God is the authority. But guess what? Everybody here, all of us, we all fall short in our understanding of how authoritative God actually is. Because We understand authority in human terms, but you know, we think about it. We're talking about not just an authority figure like a parent who gave birth to us, 
But we're talking about the authority of the God who created us and everything else out of nothing. He spoke us into being. And that's a whole new level of, boy, we're responsible to him. And you know, as we come at life, we often forget who's in charge. We often forget how God is the authority and we constantly try and take control. Things happen in life that we don't like and we start talking, don't we? Well, I don't like this and oh, things shouldn't be this way. And, and you know what? It wouldn't be such a big deal, us complaining about things not being the way we think they should be, except I was thinking about this, it comes into line in contrast against the first command. No other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. Even if, especially if, that God is you. Right? And that's what we're doing. When we don't like how life goes, when we don't like how things are, when we start saying, this is wrong and I'm not talking about against injustices, but we, we begin to feel like, hey, I don't deserve this, and I, I, I want to change everything. And what we're saying is, I want to be the one who's in control. So we come into Genesis 21, and I warn you of that. I warn me of that, because I know that as I came to this chapter, I started thinking, wait a second, why are things like this? Things should be different. And you'll see what I mean as we get into this. Let's start reading uh, Genesis 21. We're going to go um, down to verse 21 today. And let's just read the first seven verses to begin with to get into an understanding of where we are in the story once again. And the sermon title, which is not up there, is God's Injustice? Question mark. You see if you can see any injustices of God in this, in this passage we're studying this morning. Verse 1 says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said Abraham and Sarah, or to Abraham that Sarah would have said, uh, <laughs> sorry, would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And I would add in her old age too, which might, yeah, she's pointing the finger at him, I guess. No, it's just incredibly significant. They were old when they had this child. And you know, if we just jumped in, pulled out this chapter, these seven verses, picked out this paragraph out of its context, um, and the and forgot about the history around this couple, we could simply just be happy along with them and go, oh, isn't that wonderful? Look at what happened with this couple. Made a great Sunday school story, didn't it? You know, you get the little 
brief, hey, God gave Abraham and Sarah a baby in their old age. Isn't that wonderful? Color the sheet, and then you go home. But the truth of the matter calls for a stronger reaction. We know more of the story. We've been following it along. And so I trust as you read through this, you were thinking about some of the history, some of the context that this is in. On the one hand, this is a major fulfillment of the promises and plans of God. When he called Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, he talked to him about blessing, about a land, and about a nation. This is the third thing in that list. He was going to provide a nation through this child. A nation where not only Abraham would be blessed, but the whole world would be blessed. God's channel of blessing to the world through this people. And we all know about how long they had to wait for this promise to come to fruition. It was about 25 years. You think about that. How many promises would you be able to wait patiently for for 25 years? And they didn't wait very patiently. There were missteps along the way. And so we could follow that whole story and go through the highs and the lows and the, you know, the just wait a little longer and uh, a little, another affirmation and, you know, it's going to happen. And so when we come to the fulfillment, it means a whole lot more, especially when we think this is not just a blessing for this old couple, but this is a blessing for the entire world we see that God is at work here. And we know in other instances in the word of God, we have people who uh, were born of divine circumstances. Children that were born uh, to parents who were barren, to, uh, in circumstances where there shouldn't have been a child. We know of Samuel and John the Baptist, and especially our Lord Jesus Christ. God steps in to show he was at work he was going to do something special through this child. And so this is kind of a, an exciting thing. This is, a, this is a big deal, a big fulfillment to a promise here. But on the other hand, we've been going through this story, and we know about just a lot of the things that have taken place. Uh, we know about the unfaithfulness of Abraham and Sarah in certain circumstances, we know that, uh, you know, they've, they've had some struggles. And we could be scratching our head right now saying, does this couple really deserve this blessing? I mean, what do you think? Do they really believe it? Do they deserve to be smiled on by God in this way? If this is just a human story, the human perspective, what would it be? We uh, might be laughing, laughing along with Ishmael, the son who is looking scornfully on Isaac in the next passage. But instead, here they are laughing. Isaac's name means laughter. They were laughing in unbelief before. Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, and now they're laughing in relief, we've got a child. And we're thinking, 
do they really deserve that child after what they've done? When we think about what's going to happen in the next paragraph, we think, do they deserve this child? And one thing I want us to be clear as we start out at the outset, as we work on this first paragraph, which, uh, you know, the promised son arrives. I want us to think about how we look at this passage of scripture, how we look at life, and how we look at our lives. I was thinking of it as, as I was preparing this week of the ambiguous picture. There are ambiguous pictures. Have you heard of that? I didn't know that's what they were called myself, but have you ever seen that picture where you look at it, and if you look at it for a while, you see an old woman, and then if you look at it in a little different way, you can see the young woman, You've all seen that picture? Now, I'm not going to ask you which you saw, the old woman or the young woman, but I, I was thinking, you know, sometimes we look at things, we look at them in a certain way, and as I read a, a little article on that, they said they did a study on that, and the one thing they discovered is that young people usually see the young woman first, and older people usually see the older lady first. And so I will not ask you which you saw first because I don't want to categorize anybody here this morning. But, you know, you, you think about it. We see what we want to see. When we look at things, we identify with things that, that we closely, we identify things we closely identify with. And, you know, you think of that. Um, you know, if you've ever seen a curtain with this, you know, a, a, a sort of a nondescript design on it, how long do you have to look at that curtain before you see a face in it? Not very long, right? Because our minds are tuned to look for faces. And so we can see faces in a lot of different places and then they set up shrines to, to Elvis or Jesus or something, you know, because I saw, I saw his face right there in the clouds. But you know, when we come to the Bible, the story, and history, usually what we do is we identify with the human element there. We look at things in a very human way. We forget about God. And I want to go back to the first couple of verses and look at them. And I want to ask you, what did you see as you read the first couple of verses? Did you see, oh, Abraham and Sarah have a boy. Or did you see what it says there? The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Did you see that as you read it through the first time with me? Did you see that it was God who is over all and in all and through all and this is his story, this is something he had planned out and everything is going just according to his timing. And you know where we would jump in and start thinking humanly as I did with you at the beginning and say, you know, is this right? Do they deserve this? We don't have to do that. 
I mean, we do have to see if there are injustices, rights and wrongs, and, and recognize them. But we don't have to start criticizing or, or becoming angry because, wow, this doesn't seem fair, because we're going to see some of that unfairness unfold. But what we need to establish, especially here in the good times, is that God is the author of the story. He is the one that's in authority over all that's taking place. And so let's carry on and let's read this story and see how things continue to unfold. Sarah and Abraham, they have a baby. Now we carry on, verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. She wouldn't even say her name. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Beersheba. Well, this happens, and we remember everything that did take place before. We remember how Sarah offered Hagar, the slave, the Egyptian slave woman, to him to produce offspring. And we think, wait a minute, this was Sarah and Abraham's doing. They were the ones who really failed in this story. And now this? Now this? And then our deep prejudices against people who are rich and powerful come up and the abuse of power, the abuse that power seems to produce. And you know what it does? It's true. We say legitimately with Ishmael, poor Ishmael. You think of that. For how many years Abraham was his father, he was his only child. A dozen years or so, he was Abraham's only son. And we think bitterly of the times that we didn't get what we felt we deserved. And we have this completely human reaction to the injustices that we see taking place in the story. And we ask this question. We say, how can this be a part of God's story? How can he let things like this happen? You know what the answer is? As long as he lets us be a part of the story. As long as people 
are involved, people like us, there will be injustices in God's story as well. Where there are sinful people, there will always be suffering. And we think of this story, and we go, okay, okay, God is, is at work, even though the chosen couple are acting poorly, disobedience, not showing mercy. We have this idea, you know, that we can sort of pick evil out and we can identify it and we can see what's wrong and we can go, there, if we just take care of that, everything would be okay. But you know, in order to do that, we'd really have to take all the people out of this story. and We'd have to remove ourselves as well. And I'm in no way trying to justify, I am in no way trying to justify people's wrong, especially people who are supposed to be following God. I'm just sort of taking us on a little bit of a thought tour in order to understand how it is we approach a story like this and understand it. God is not saying, because this is written in the word of God, oh, everything's good. He's not saying that Abraham and and Sarah did everything right, just in the same way that he would not say that about your life and about mine. And so we need to take care. We need to be careful. We need to watch, you know, our prejudices and the way we think about things in this day and age. Uh, You know, a lot of times we go, oh, you know, it's obvious like they were the wrong ones. They're the rich, the richy rich people, you know, and everybody hates rich people, but be careful. We're rich people, aren't we? (laughs) We are. And generally, what people have a problem with are richer people, right? Anybody who's richer than me, those are the ones. They can't be doing things right. They've got to be evil. They've got to be bad. But we know it's not wealth that is the issue. It's the love of money. We also see the normal course for power corrupting people taking place here. We know of New Testament examples. We know of what happened even with the, own, the, the disciples of Christ. James and John started to follow Jesus at his side and they were ready to torch towns and respond very strongly to people who wouldn't follow Jesus, wouldn't listen to him. But you know what? The word of God gives us a proper perspective on power and on how to deal with people who have power even over us. And it doesn't say, fight for justice. It doesn't say, become an activist. It doesn't say, oh, do this or that. This is what Peter tells us, that man who we know really struggled in this area with how to deal with power and authority. But this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 21 inspired by God, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Wow. That is the New Testament response to authority, even abusive authority. Interesting. To take it, to suffer, to have a good testimony before that authority. As I was thinking of it, in the context of this story, things could have turned out very differently. You know, think of it. If Hagar was a queen in Egypt, and she had power over Abraham and Sarah, she would probably be abusing them. In fact, that's what we see in the normal course of this world. People who come into authority, who have power over, over other people, usually begin to abuse that power unless they have something holding them back, an understanding of who God is, and his power over all of us. And we get in our mind, wow, if we could just fix this, if we could just give Hagar a little more power in the story, if we could bring her up to the level, wouldn't change anything. There'd be abuse going one way or the other, or both ways. You know, I was thinking of this in the world, and, you know, we look at politically how things have developed, and we think of North America and this desire to help the world. We got a good start here in North America with at least the idea of deism, there is a God, the word of God is true, and, and people working from that standard. Unfortunately, we've come unmoored from that. But we still think we can help the rest of the world. And I think about our neighbors who are much more powerful, much more capable of going and doing things in other parts of the world. And I was thinking about someone who they were helping out, a guy, a poor guy in the Middle East, just years ago, a few decades ago. They're helping out this guy, boosting him up, providing him with arms. And his name was Saddam Hussein. Well, that didn't turn out well. And that's what we get this idea of we can fix things. Oh, this guy's the underdog. We can help him. And that's our human way of thinking about justice. And it wasn't too much later when America ended up being at war with that same Saddam Hussein. And so as we come to a story like this, what I'm encouraging us to do is not go, wow, this is terrible. We could fix this. Why didn't God do it differently? To looking at it in another way. God is sovereign. He's powerful. People are sinful. And messing up all the time, even those who are trying to follow him. What can we learn from this? How can we take this, this story and learn from it? Well, first of all, I would have to say, yes, I do hold Sarah and Abraham as being more responsible 
Not just the fact that they were in power, but the fact that they were followers of God. And unfortunately, Sarah allowed her insecurities, her insecurities, to cause her to react badly, even to somebody who might have been doing something badly against her child. And the mama bear turned on, and she says, I'm not going to let that happen. And you think about that. How often do we look at an injustice that takes place and we go, well, that's not fair. I'm going to put my foot down. And we use it for an opportunity to let the flesh go a little bit. To rebel. To crush. Someone who we feel needs to be put in their place. And that's not the way we're called to operate. That's not what we read in God's word, in Peter's challenge to the believers at that time that were suffering under a great deal of abuse. We don't need to be insecure like Sarah was. We know the word of God. We know that perfect love casts out fear, and we know that God is giving us perfect love. He's sovereign. He's got it all covered. The question is, are we returning that perfect love to him? Are we living in a relationship where we go, hey, our heavenly father has things covered. I don't have to protect myself. He will protect me. I just need to do what I need to do. I need to do the right thing in this circumstance. I need to allow him to lead and work through me. We all know it. We've all seen it. The confidence that a child has in life when they know that they're loved by their parents. And we should have that in a magnified way in terms of our relationship with God. What else should we learn? Well, this time, this time they were told to send Hagar away with Ishmael. And it was God who told Abraham to do this. Abraham did it with more provision this time, more mercy, greater concern. We need to remember that God was the one who was directing this. And he was doing it knowing his purposes and knowing how he would provide for this single mother and her child. So many times we think, I can jump in and I can fix a situation. I can save it. You know what we're called to do? We're called to do what God calls us to do. God's the one who had things in, hands, in hand. I could think of a number of personal experiences and personal circumstances where I thought that I had to be or we had to be the people to step in, to help, to save, to, to fix things. And I could also share with you a number of times where God said, hold it right there. And it seemed to me like the good thing to do. It seemed to me like the proper thing to do, but God said, nope, you're not going any further. I'm the one who is the Savior. I'm the one who will take care of things. 
I'm the one who will balance the books at the end. And so we say, okay, God is completely sovereign. He's the one who has everything under control. Not just the decision at this moment, but the outcome. He'll take care of things. And so we have the promised son arriving. We have the partial son departing. And then last of all, we've got the purposes of God are spared. In verse 15 to 21. It says, the water, when the water in the skin was gone, as Hagar and Ishmael wandered in Beersheba, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened his eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, as I read this with my man-centered bias, my initial title was, The Pair of Sons Are Spared, thinking that Ishmael is saved from death and Isaac is, is saved as the promised child, preserved. But really, the whole point is the purposes of God are spared. God continues to work out His specific purposes for the good of all. The important part of the story is not, first, what happens to these little boys. But the priority is the God of the universe and what he was up to, what he was doing. And because of the character of our God, everything will be taken care of appropriately. We start with the purposes of God. Being fulfilled through a covenant people who are preserved. Isaac is the promised child. That's where the focus is this is what God said at the beginning. God said, I will save the world through this boy and through the people who come to follow. I'll provide salvation. A salvation that glorifies God and not the misguided efforts of Abraham and Sarah. And we think back to that well-known verse in Romans chapter 8 that says all things. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purposes. We say that's what we see here in terms of Isaac. We also know, we see, we read how God, God shows His character, His mercy in taking care of Ishmael and providing for him 
at this point in time. And we could say, well, we would have done a much better job. But no, no, we wouldn't have. God took care of things just fine. And so we can, in a loving relationship with God, have perfect confidence in his plans and that they will be for our good. We see his mercy taking care of the illegitimate son. And this doesn't mean that bad things will never happen to him. In fact, it doesn't mean that bad things never happen to Isaac. But God is involved in preserving in preserving Ishmael, giving him an opportunity at life, in life. Because God is unchangingly gracious and merciful. Those are his default. Remember, we've talked about this in Exodus 34, how God says, hey, I am a patient, loving, merciful God. That's the first thing that we need to know about him. Once again, we go back to Peter in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. And as we look at this story, we kind of ask this question, and it's natural. How can the Lord do this? How can he be sovereign over all of this and it be okay? On the one hand, we're confronted by the sovereign God with whom there is no room for us to even question him. What right do you or I or all of us in unison have to question the creator of the world, our creator. Another verse from Romans 9, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, the lump of clay to the potter, why have you made me thus? Has not the potter every right over the clay? But even at that, even though God does not owe us an answer, even though he is not obligated to respond to our cries of injustice, you know what God does? He answers. He answers us. And that answer, that answer came when he humbled himself and sent his son into the world. At the same time, God himself came into the world to give an answer to our objections. An answer that we could understand. He didn't crush every injustice, not yet. But what did he do? He subjected himself to every injustice, to all the injustice that there is in the world. He put himself, he the creator, the sovereign God planned this, that he 
he would suffer. And in this example that we could understand, he showed both his holiness, his absolute justice, and his merciful love. You know, we often ask this question. There's even a book, probably a book or two written with this title. Why do bad things happen to good people? But you know we should change that title. The title should be, Why do good things happen to bad people? That first title only applied to Christ. And so as we come to a story like this, we go, okay, God is working out his purposes. Injustice, yeah. Our people, our people failing, our people acting in ways they should not act. Ways we would have acted if we inserted us into this story, I'm sure. But God is working. And God is accomplishing his purposes. And he has a plan. And those plans always start with mercy. A desire to save. A desire to teach. A desire to love. A desire to bring his failing, fallen people back to himself. God's at work. And so we would do well not simply to look at this story and go, boy, I hope they learned a lesson. But to look at that story and go, how can I learn a lesson? Not just a lesson to apply to this story that took place thousands of years ago in the Old Testament, but a story that looks at our life today and our view of God and his fairness as things get worked out and our failure as we act incorrectly in some circumstances. God is teaching. God is working. God is trying to lead us to work along with his purposes. Maybe I'll leave this with you to read a little bit yourself, but... In Galatians chapter 4, it would do well because this whole story comes up again in Paul's writing. In that chapter where he writes, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then he talks about how at a perfect time, God sent his son into the world. And then at the end of that chapter, he talks about Abraham having two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And he talks about us being born as sons of the slave, being in slavery, in slavery to sin, and how God has adopted us to be one of his own sons, to inherit eternal life. In Christ, we are sons of the promise. So let's live like true sons of the promise, confident in the love and the salvation that's been offered to us through Jesus Christ. 
not insecure about the love that God has given to us and ready to love and even suffer in the situations that we face in the world today for God and for his glory as Christ has given us an example. Father, help us. Help us to take this lesson, this truth, this story, and to be uh, taught by it, to grow through it, and to understand that you are our God. You are sovereign over all things, and we can trust in you. Lord, forgive us for our failures. Forgive us as your children as we have turned back and lived under the slavery of sin once again and dishonored you in our treatment of others and injustice. Forgive us, Lord. And help us to be people who are so confident in your love. We're able to walk through this life, a life that is filled with injustices, but in perfect confidence because we know that you love us. You love us despite our sinfulness. You love us despite trying circumstances. We know all this because of Jesus Christ. He was your son, your only unique son. And he suffered. He suffered. It was his privilege. It was for your glory. And in him it is ours as well. Lord, help us. Help us to honor you. Help us to live for you. Help us to walk with you. So that your glory might be seen in the world. Because you are the only sovereign creator of this world. Continue to teach us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.